Well, we've been in John 13 for these uh, four weeks. This is our fourth, our last time before Easter. You'll notice on the study sheet that the text is on the left side and commentary is on the right side. So we have the biblical portions that we'll be looking at and just some highlights uh, on the right side, which is probably good because we're kind of on compressed time uh, this morning. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, thank you for the worship that we've just experienced. We ask now that as we take a closer look to one of those incidents between those two notes, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Now we ask in the name of Christ our Lord and to the glory of the Father. Amen. Amen. Well, Jesus covers a lot of ground between John 13 and John 17. And uh, becomes a great sort of Lenten study to sit in the upper room with Jesus. I divided it in my own study over these last few years into three parts. The God who kneels covers the two object lessons of Jesus stripping down, covering himself with a, with a towel, washing the disciples' feet, and also the bread and the cup. Now, John, John 13 doesn't talk about the bread and cup, but it, it's, well, he talks about it in terms of the bread being given to Judas, but in terms of the kind of institution of the Lord's Supper, we look to the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke for that. So you have two vivid object lessons, the bread in the cup and Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And those two represent the atoning sacrifice of Christ. He's that cleansing that Jesus engages in and washing the disciples' feet. And then the bread in the cup, of course, the Eucharistic Supper, the Passover is now fulfilled in this Last Supper or farewell meal that will not be eaten by Christ until that second coming and the wedding feast of the Lamb. So a lot is being imaged and symbolized there. A few years ago, I had a friend who who left the Presbyterian Church for Eastern Orthodoxy. And he was so tired of the evangelical subjectivity, the... um, people speaking kind of just off the cuff and opinions. Now, obviously, you and your worship don't engage in that. Um, It's prescribed. It's historic words of the church. It's prayers that have been carefully crafted in order to express theology and truth from Scripture. But in much of the evangelical world, it's oftentimes the leadership of a personality or of a charisma. You, You know that. Well, he had become fed up with it. He was a great musician, (coughs) wonderful worship leader, loved working with him. And shortly after I left the church in Bloomington, Indiana, he left the church and was drawn to the Eastern Orthodox Church. He came to visit us, Virginia and I, in San Diego. And uh, he came on a Saturday, and he was going to lead a workshop in our church on worship. And uh, Paul wanted to get on Saturday night to an Eastern Orthodox service. So we went, and uh, it was a real education for me. Um, The priest standing with an icon and people processing forward and kissing the icon of Jesus. 
And Paul and I, I mean, Paul couldn't understand why I didn't convert to Eastern Orthodoxy. He just thought that uh, here was something that was so historic, so ancient, so solid. Um, and that led me on a journey to look at what biblical images are at work in the scriptures. And what I found as I started studying the scripture on the idea of image was that there are a number of images in scripture that speak volumes. Um, the towel and basin being one, but many others, the unadorned altar, and in Exodus 20 we get worship instructions and God specifies to Moses and to the Israelites just how they're supposed to make this altar. And uh, uh, the thorn in the flesh is an image, a metaphor. Uh, the Lamb of God is an image, a metaphor. Uh, the easy yoke that Jesus talks about is one. Um, the borrowed donkey. Uh, images forth, you know, the prophecy of Zechariah. So, but what was interesting about these biblical images is how earthy they are. They do not lend themselves to beautification. They become, whether it's Gideon's trumpet or um, they just they remain an earthy or you don't you never bow before an, a, a yoke, an easy yoke, but it becomes a symbol of something. Uh, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble of heart. You know, and so, uh, one Lent season, we took each of those images from the borrowed donkey to um, our, we, our final one was the empty tomb, uh, but the crown of thorns. And we, we took those images and we studied them out because you cannot understand them apart from their biblical context. And I guess that's what led me to this uh, originally to this towel and basin image in John 13. Uh, I wrote a book on that and uh, uh, the discipline of surrender and what I discovered was a theological theme that runs through, and I have one for everybody if you'd like one before you leave. That image sort of gave the same message all the way through each of those images an image of how to process discipleship and the image of humility and surrendering to the will of the Lord in a holistic way. Well, I think what we found in the upper room is that there is this full disclosure by Jesus and there's intimate friendship. There's an emotional range in the upper room, emotional range from identifying his betrayer warning Peter of his denial, but also calling them his friends. Jesus' last extended conversation with the disciples has the character of full disclosure and intimate friendship. An emotional range was extreme. But this did not distract Jesus from preparing and praying for all of his disciples, including us. I'd like to think that nothing was left unsaid that Jesus intended to say. They are prayed for, they are informed, they are uh, blessed with the coming of the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Uh, 
He has prepared the disciples, and he's done so in a phenomenal way in terms of emotional attention to them. Now, this will all change when he passes through the Kindred Valley and up the mountain to Gethsemane, and then he focuses for the first time really on himself as he prays out his agony to the Lord. But right now, he's the illustration of tremendous spiritual discipline as he focuses on the people before him and how to prepare them for what's coming. Let's pick it up in verse 31 on the left side. When he was gone, when Judas was gone, Jesus said, it's the second full paragraph if you know it on the left side. Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. What makes this command new is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ that establishes the love of God in the most profound sense. And now our obedience of love flows out of that sacrificial redemptive gift. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. A little later, he will say, everybody will know that the Father sent me if you love one another, which is even more profound than people knowing that they, uh, knowing the disciples by their love. Verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Now, what does that tie back to? That ties back to the fact that Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot come. Have you ever been in a doctor's office where he says something to you and from that point on, you don't remember anything else that he said? Well, I think that's true here in the case of Peter. That when Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot come. From that point on, Peter isn't hearing a word about the new command. He's stopped thinking about anything else but the fact that what does he mean by this? Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Verse 37, Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will deny me. You will disown me three times. I'd like us to just reflect for a moment on how difficult it must have been for the, Pharisee, uh, for, the, for, um, for the disciples not to have Jesus' physical presence. That they had grown so used to his praying, his work, his miracles, his teaching. They had accompanied him every step of the way they had been with him constantly after the triumphal entry in Jerusalem. And now he's saying, I'm leaving. I'm going away. Now, we know he prepared them for his departure. And he would do so during the days leading up to the ascension after the resurrection as well. And we see a wonderful transformation on the part of the disciples from their pre-passion inquisitiveness, curiosity, doubt, ambiguity, to their post-passion, Pentecost, confidence, and courage 
Jesus prepares them for that, and they make a transition from his physical presence to his spiritual presence by the power of the Spirit of Christ. But there is a sense in which um, I call it I call it the false literal, where in the absence of Jesus, we have to come up with something else, kind of in the place of Jesus, that gathers our spiritual attention. And I think that there's often a religious substitute for a vital and personal faith in Jesus Christ in the risen Lord. There's a tendency to put something else in that place. I think you often see it with um, the charisma that surrounds a spiritual leader. And that leader becomes, in a way, a false, literal presence of Christ. And if we don't watch it, that spiritual person that we so highly respect and find almost essential for our Christian faith, that person is the one that we set up for praying for us, understanding the Bible for us, witnessing for us. This person becomes a substitute for uh, the literal absence of Jesus, but the spiritual reality of his presence in his resurrected Paracolete-informed presence in Christ. Now, does that make any sense to you? The challenge of the false literal. Um, It even could be a set of spiritual disciplines that just sort of take over in our life in lieu of really following the Lord Jesus Christ. The disciples wonderfully in the spirit face the problem of the false literal and Peter's concern here, Lord, where are you going, becomes resolved and it becomes resolved in a very dramatic way with the resurrection and Pentecost. But notice his tone in verse 38. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will... Uh, disown me three times. And let's switch to the Matthew text. Then Jesus told him, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Well, I guess nobody's going to put their arm around Peter and say, will you just listen to yourself? You're sounding awfully boastful and awfully courageous. Uh, And maybe none of them did that. You know, I speculate, what if John had just put, had said to Peter, will you listen to yourself? But they all proclaim their undying loyalty to Jesus, uh, no matter what, and they all scatter. Uh, I do think that it's worth contemplating the difference between a Judas and a Peter. I think Judas ended up hating Jesus because he was so dissatisfied with unexpected dreams and fulfillments that um, 
that Judas saw almost himself doing uh, religious service by turning Jesus in because he had concluded he was a fraud. Peter, on the other hand, I think was really intensely devoted to Jesus, but in that moment uh, in which his own faith was tested, he capitulates. Now, is there a difference between kind of an ego challenge when it comes to the faith and a spiritual challenge? Now, we know from the scriptures, who is the one who takes out the sword and swipes the ear off? One of the guards in the Garden of Gethsemane when that Roman group comes out to arrest Jesus. If only two people of the disciples are going to have a sword, we can pretty well guess that it's going to be Peter that's going to have one of them. And it's Peter, we're told. Cut the ear off the guard. So here's a person who will face armed guards with courage. And yet, just a little bit later, outside Caiaphas's office, warming himself around a fire, a servant girl will ask him, well, aren't you one of them? And he will say, no, I'm not. And then another servant girl will ask him a little later on, aren't you one of them? No, I'm not. And then the group of the guards will say, aren't you one of them? And he'll deny it the third time. What's the difference between the bravery in the garden and the denial outside the high priest's office? What's the difference between that, those two challenges? So Pete's saying Jesus was with him, Lee? Okay, this is going south too fast for, for Peter now, and he's distancing himself from it. Well, I think that some of what they said, there's a social pressure, sort of. Like the first time he's around all of the other disciples and Jesus, and he wants to be who he wants to be in front of them. And then when they're all gone, and he is alone, and there's a sort of a different kind of social pressure, and to be with Jesus would be to be the outcast um, the second time, as opposed to in the club. And I think also the physical presence of Jesus, he's not there. And so his trust and his fear kind of, his lack of trust, and he doesn't have Jesus there to make it better. Well, now, I've, I've, I've set you up a little bit because I haven't given you the full story. You do remember that when the rooster crows, that he's, for the first time, for the first time we realize that he is in visual sight of Jesus. And remember, Jesus looks at him. And that look just crushes Peter. He goes out and weeps bitterly. So he's still close to the presence of Jesus. We can, we, he can see him. Um, but I think Oscar's point is, I guess, the one, and, and shared among you is, is the idea that the context makes a real difference here. Peter is up for the macho challenge. but he's not up for the real spiritual life challenge. 
And maybe there were a number of factors that entered into uh, the servant girl asking him the question, couldn't it have run through his mind, you don't really deserve the truth? Like, who are you? Um, you're a nobody, and you don't. I don't really need to be honest with you. Um, it's like I, either the wealthy mo mother and the nanny. Who deserves the witness? <laughs> the nanny just as much as the wealthy mother, obviously. But we might be thinking one's more of a prize than the other. Um, the, the difference between, an, you put me in a sanctuary and I can really pretty clearly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, put me in a university classroom where the prevailing sentiment is to think that this is really weird stuff. Uh, am I as free, as clear, as uh, do I own that witness as much in the one context as the other? We're all very Christian here within our sanctuary, but how does that Christian commitment and faith come across in, in, at the office? Do people see that we are who we are as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ in both contexts? I think that is a challenge. Peter bravely puts his life on the line when it's an ego challenge. But in the presence of a servant girl, two servant girls, and then the crowd that's around the fire, not so much. Um, why did Jesus hone in on a rooster as a symbol here? The rooster crowing. Three times. You'll have denied me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. I, I find it interesting that here's a, a symbol that's more of a symbol as a sound. The rooster crowing. What 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 the crowing rooster reminds a friend of mine. He was arrested for drunk driving, and he was put into jail. And the closing of the iron gate, and that sound, has stayed with him for decades. And whenever he hears anything similar to it, he remembers that night. I have a friend um, uh, from our San Diego church who uh, broke her sister's favorite dish and it smashed. She swept it up, buried it in the backyard and never said anything to her sister for 35 years. And every time a dish would break, glass would break, her mind immediately went to what she had done with her sister's plate. Sound is a very uh, you know, important element here, and the rooster crowing, depending on your culture, is uh, a pretty every morning thing. Um, now, do I think that um, Peter was always kind of... Um, every morning reminded how what a horrible event 
had taken place on the night that Jesus was betrayed? No, I don't think so. In Second uh, Peter, he speaks of the morning star, which is picked up in the book of Revelation. I think mornings became something very positive to him because of the forgiveness that Jesus extended him. Remember post-resurrection, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? The walk on the beach, breakfast on the beach. It's a great Easter, uh, I think, message. Uh, and Peter says, yes, you know that I love you. Uh, I think there's restoration here, complete forgiveness. And that is certainly evident in that Pentecost sermon that Peter preached. Nevertheless, the early church always pictured Peter. No, I shouldn't say always. Often pictured Peter with the keys of the kingdom and a rooster. And the rooster became a symbol for watchfulness, staying alert, being faithful. When I... Um, pastored at, at First Press, just at the S-curve, downtown San Diego is where our church was. Church overlooked five, and where five came down south and then turned uh, to head to Mexico, right there in the center of the city is where our church was. That S-curve was very dangerous. Uh, and I would sit in my office, and I would hear a fender crunch, and then another and then another, and then another. And sometimes I didn't even get up and look. I just picked up the phone and dialed 911. And sure enough, it would look like a war zone. Ten cars smashed. Uh, because it's, it just commonly set off a chain reaction. And I was always impressed by the fact that uh, an hour later, you couldn't tell anything had happened. It would happen at 10 o'clock. I'd go for lunch at 11.30. I'd walk the bridge over 5. Everything cleared up. The ambulances are gone. The tow trucks are gone. Nothing. I thought, you know, we probably, if uh, we just left everything as it was, taking the people to hospital and whatever, and just left the cars there, probably have quite an impact on how we drove. But we removed it. There was no symbol of it. Um, Jesus tied Peter's denial to a sound, a repeated sound that would be heard often, a reminder to be watchful. The early church took it that way. I wonder, maybe you need to transfer the sound to your alarm clock. That the sound of the alarm can have the significance of being watchful alert, um, ready to face a day in faithfulness uh, to the Lord. Um, the crowing rooster. Well, um, if you, this is one year of Lenten studies for First Press that InterVarsity Press published, and uh, it, it gives a much better explanation than I did to this idea of biblical images. Um,
Well, Peter had to do something before that happened. <laughs> he had to deny the Lord. Um, uh, it was a willful act on, on his part. I don't think he was determined. No, I don't think fate caused it. I think his own weakness. Um, and I guess what I'd like you to go away with is the idea that you and I may be up for the ego challenge in following Jesus Christ, especially in the company of committed Christians. But we may not really be up to the spiritual challenge. When no one's looking, there's no supportive group, no one really cares, and we're talking to people who we don't maybe in ourselves think are all that important. Um, And yet, uh, that was really serious with what Peter did. All the disciples scattered, um, and I think we're supposed to identify with Peter. I don't think we're supposed to identify with Judas. Uh, Martin Luther would disagree with me there, but I think Judas is in a camp by himself for reasons that uh, are dire. Um, He's a real traitor, and there's treachery at work. When I was a kid, we would often visit Niagara Falls, and on the Canadian side, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and uh, near the Horseshoe, on the Canadian side near Horseshoe Falls, you're right there. You're right there with a, a low, and you just see this, um, you know, this cascade of powerful water two feet away from you. And whenever I get, whenever I would get there as a boy, I'd be scared to death. It's just a hop, and you're there. And um, I guess. Peter is too much, I'm too much like Peter, Peter's too much like me, um, and I just feel nervous about being that close to the edge. And I think that's a good kind of nervousness for us to have, actually. Ron? What if, um, this is a speculation, but if Judas hadn't hanged himself and Jesus had run into him on the beach, what do you think would Well, that's an interesting hypothetical, Ron. <laughs> Uh, there's no indication that we really have of, uh, of any forgiveness. There's resignation and regret on Judas's part, but there's not repentance. And the disciples process this in Acts by using the psalm of the field of blood. And uh, they process it as, uh, and Jesus himself says, the one of perdition. Um, so I think we have our, I mean, I don't think we have to speculate on, on Judas's eternal destiny too much. Um, I think we do have to worry about being Peter. It's interesting to me, all the other disciples at the same time said, no, not us either. We won't deny you. And the scripture doesn't record it, but I don't think it's a stretch to maybe speculate that they possibly did as well, but that it seems like Jesus singled out Peter for this experience like to, to sort of specially reveal to him his sin um, for some purpose, maybe for the purpose that God, that Jesus had ahead for Peter at the foundation of the church. But it, I don't know, I'm just struck by that sort of Jesus went out of his way, at least with Peter as opposed to the others, to make sure he understood this sin. So we didn't need 11 examples, but we really got one powerful example. Right. So I do think it speaks to us today um, very much so. Well, let's pray. Lord God, uh, as this church continues to worship this morning, we pray for your blessing and for your help in our lives to be faithful to you, we ask. We thank you for your forgiveness and acceptance. 
through your grace and mercy. Uh, together we pray and praise in the name of Christ. Amen.